Abramada readers. My name is Ratnaguna, and I'm delighted today, absolutely delighted to have Shravaniya with me in the studio. Hello, Shravaniya. Hello, Ratnaguna. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great. Well, when I say I've got you here with me, that means I've got you about maybe 2,000 miles away. You're in America, aren't you? That's correct. In Boston, essentially. Boston. Oh, the uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so let me say a few words about Travania to begin with. Uh, obviously, you can tell by his name, he's a member of the, let me just adjust this. He's a member of the Tri Ratna Buddhist Order, has been for about 18 years. But he's also a musician, a classical musician, and uh, his professional name is Mark Latham. Uh, let me just tell you a few things about him. I hope this is up to date. If not, you can correct me afterwards. You are currently the music director and conductor of the New Hampshire Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, you're the director of the orchestra and adjunct professor of conducting violin and viola at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. Is that still correct? That's still correct. Yep. And you're a violinist uh, in the Aria Loca String Quartet. Correct. I think you're a few other things as well, actually. You're a teacher. I am a teacher as well. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, I've been looking you up a little bit. And it looks like you love teaching music to people. I do. I do enjoy teaching. I've always, even from about the age of 20, I've somehow always taught. And that when I became more involved with Buddhism, that somehow, perhaps not surprisingly, transformed itself into trying to communicate and teach Dharma and meditation and that kind of thing as well. So, yes. Some, somehow I like, uh, I just like to communicate, actually. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So, uh, now I've got some questions for you here. Um, so you're a classical musician. Uh, you Correct. obviously love classical music. It's your life. It's what you've dedicated your life to. So here are a couple of maybe rather challenging questions for you. Why should people listen to classical music? Well, that is, it's a great question. It is a challenging question particularly uh, today when a lot of people, particularly in the West, um, are seemingly more drawn to other kinds of music, you know, particularly pop music, rap, hip hop, whatever it might be. So classical music seems to have taken, uh, you know, the, the back burner, as they say. Um, so why should... I promote, as it were, an interest, even a love in classical music, in either playing or listening. There are, well, I think there are some good reasons that I should, that we should uh, endeavour to take on that uh, proposal, as it were, to 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 expand the you know the uh, the fields of classical music to a wider audience. Perhaps the main one is that I think classical music, by which I, I'm, I'm talking mainly about Western music, that is largely, if, if it's sort of pre-19th century, we're talking mostly European music. Uh, but today that's obviously expanded to, you know, to, to include, well, anyone who's writing a certain idiom that includes 
um, certain forms, certain combination of instruments. But I think one of the primary reasons that people might want to listen to classical music is, is that word itself, listen. Classical music, I think, I believe more than most other music I know of, you know, I can't say I'm an expert in world music, that is like, you know, Indian raga and so on. Uh, but in, in classical music invites us to listen with attention. A lot of classical music is much longer in, in its uh, offering, in its scope than most, let's say, pop songs, for example. You know, most pop songs, you know, they probably, there's a historical reason that they were probably derived to fit onto a, you know, one of those little records whose names I've forgotten. Um, 45. Like, you know, 45, like you'd get in the jukebox. So there was a sort of time constraint. And, and so many, you know, pop songs fit into that mold. There are a few exceptions, like, for instance, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is quite long compared to most pop songs. Um, but classical music, as we know, you know, uh, a Wagner opera is five hours long. Uh, a Beethoven symphony is 30, 40. If it's a ninth, it's you know, 65 minutes long and so forth. So um, even a, a single movement of, let's say, you know, a Schumann sonata or Schubert piano sonata can be 10 minutes. In, 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 it's just, you know, twice as long, let's say, as the average pop song. So it's inviting us to pay attention in a certain way and to, in a way, take that listening seriously. So I think classical music, more than a lot of other music, resists the temptation to have music be sort of background noise, background entertainment. Uh, you know, there was a composer, Eric Satie, a French composer in the you know the, the early twentieth century, who 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 wrote. Uh, you know, he, he was he was a, a sort of, in a way, an avant-garde composer who who wrote very simple music, which was seen as avant-garde because the the, the trend that we're talking, let's say, nineteen seventeen, was to write very complex music. Uh, rhythmic, rhythmically, harmonically, and so forth. But Sartre went against this grain, wrote you know that the, the, his famous piano pieces are the Gymnopédie, and and he wrote um, what he called armchair music, with, with the idea that in the interval of a let's say a play or a, a concert, he, you know, there would just be this background music. And when he saw that people were listening to it, he would rush up and down the aisle and say, "No, no, you're not supposed to be listening. It's just supposed, it's just supposed to be entertainment." So there seemed, at least at that time, to be a, a, a wanting to enter the music more deeply. But now, particularly uh, with the advent of technology, of um, you know, of radio, of CDs, and so forth, of electronic music. It's very easy to turn on music and have it be, as we know, background music. You know, you might be cooking in the kitchen, you're listening vaguely to music in the background. But classical music, as I said, is an invitation to listen more carefully, more deeply, more seriously. And why is that? I think that is because it uses forms and structures that invite us to to question, to see, to investigate meaning in our lives. I would, I would say that that's a, you might say that's quite a dramatic claim, uh, but I think there's truth in it. I, I'm not sure I can prove it, quote unquote, scientifically, but I believe that 
a music that can present these challenges, these questions. So I listen to a piece, and, and now we're going beyond the realm of purely classical music. And, and, and if the piece does something in some way to transform my experience, to, uh, to have me ask, uh, maybe even unconsciously, questions about the meaning of my life, about the progress of my life, about the, the meaning of community, of friendship, and so forth, then I think that, well, that's a music that's worth taking seriously. Um, I think there are definitely, of course, other, mu other musics that do that. But quite a lot of music that we hear, I believe, today is uh, in the sort of entertainment category. Of course, a lot of, you know, probably pop singers would re might, might resent that statement. But, um, but th you know, I think that is, for me, one of the attractions, you know, let's say of a 30-minute symphony, that you're, you're entering a space, an auditory space, that over the, the course of those 30 minutes can take you to quite a deep and profoundly, in a way, spiritual place that, as I said, uh, can begin or begin to pose the questions that might transform my life. Mm, very interesting. Um, you talked about meaning. And uh, a few weeks ago, I interviewed Advaya Chitta, who is a clinical psychologist who's very, very interested in music. And we talked for a while about meaning in music. Can music convey meaning? And as I, I said in that interview, that I'm, it's exercised me for a long time. I listen to music. Then I think, what I'm actually doing here? You know, am I learning anything? Am I, I it's, something's happening. There's some kind of transformation happening, but is there meaning to that transformation? I wonder if you have anything to say to that. Yes, yeah, so I did. I did listen to your interview with Advaya Chitta, and it's a really, really good interview. Um, well, I think we might first of all question what is meaning in the first place. And you mentioned the word transformation. So, if if, if meaning is somehow bound up with a process of transforming something, in, let's say, in our minds, um, well, then certainly music can have meaning, particularly in, you know, and, and you, 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 know, you, you talked about in that interview, well, music with words is one thing, because words, as we know, of course, are, are in, invoke the conceptual, but um, not, you know, music without lyrics, let's say, uh, just, uh, you know, sort of, quote-unquote, abstract music, well, it still, as we know, elicits responses from us. Um, you know, Advaya Chitta talks about, you know, the emotional responses. And he, I know he mentioned uh, a proposal that, or maybe music evolved as a sort of, um, you know, genetic determinant that, that favoured the evolution of, uh, of Homo sapiens. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Um, you know, we, we do, we, we are certain, because it happens to everyone, that music, when we listen to it, arouses an emotional response of some kind. You know, I've done, I've done sort of experiments where I play to a group of people. I play, let's say, a funeral march by, doesn't matter, by Beethoven, let's say. Yeah, that could be solo piano, could be, I tried to find something that was unlikely people would know. So an obscure, let's say, a quite obscure funeral march. And then I, I'd, asked the listeners to 
write down a few adjectives that describe their emotional response to this. And what was interesting, quite often you get you know, words that were similar in tone. But then once in a while you get something that, you know, you play a funeral march, so kind of slow, kind of probably in the, in the minor mode and that kind of thing. But somebody would say, oh, I, like I'm, I'm walking through a, a beautiful, you know, valley of sunflowers in, 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 a, in a mountain range. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, so it's not universal, the response. But nevertheless, it did arouse a response. Yes. yes. And I think meaning comes from, um, in a way, how we ingest that response, what we do with it. Uh, so if, if, if music, you know, I remember, for instance, um, well, I know you, you talked about listening to the Shakan in at a retreat and, uh, you know, so I was 15, I, you know, I'd already been playing violin for a number of years and, and, and I'd learned the, um, the first movement of that same, in fact, that same party to that houses, the Shakan, which is the last movement. And the first movement is an Alamand, a slow dance in, in D minor. And my parents were going through a divorce. It was quite messy. I was at boarding school, but, you know, it, it, was, it was just a mess. And, you know, what does a 15-year-old do with those emotions? So what I would do, I'd quite consciously, you know, I'd, I'd sort of get in a certain mood. And I, at the time, I'm not sure that it was specifically re- related to, you know, what was going on with my parents. But anyway, I'd, I'd get in a – and I, I realized I needed, as it were, therapy. So I just go and play. I could find a room and play the the Alamand from the uh, this, the second partita, the solo violin by Bach, and there's no question in my mind it had a, a salutary effect on my emotional state. So you know, that seems to me to have meaning that that I I could use music as a vehicle to transform myself from you might say uh, well a negative state of mind to something much more positive, more that I that I could then proceed with my life as a 15 year old trying mm. to figure out his life. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the arena of music and meaning is, it, it's, it's, well, it is very interesting because it, it's, it, it seems to be the case, but it's a little hard to pinpoint what's really going on. I think also, you know, a, a, a piece that's, let's say a movement, let's say that's 12 minutes long. That's quite a big, it's a big piece and it can only hold together if it has a certain, structure a certain form it's just the same as architecture and i believe that is the the structures that are particularly uh well developed in classical music that invite us into a space just like you went let's say you go to versailles it does i believe something to our sort of mental and emotional capacities that provide us a, a, a means to better negotiate our own messy worlds, our own messy minds. I, I think, you know, I, I think the structure of music and particularly of classical music, where, where these structures are very well developed, uh, become both a vehicle and a metaphor for what we're trying to do in terms of organizing our lives in a way from a Buddhist perspective, so we suffer less and so we cause less suffering for other people. If I, if I lead a totally messy life, messy ethically, messy, messy in my, how I communicate in my activities, then my project to cause less suffering uh, is going to be much less available to me, much less successful. And I think music um, is, is a vehicle that is well-structured music um, 
to kind of ride or to enter a a a space of organization that at the same time leaves room for interpretation and improvisation even hmm. you're reminding me of um a book that i read a few years ago called unapologetic it's by a christian who was fed up with all these um contemporary um atheists having a go at christianity so he wrote this book in response and there's one part of it when he's, he, he was married, and he was talking about the fact that he and his wife had one of those awful rows, terrible, terrible rows, tearing each other to pieces. And he left the house and he went to a cafe and he was in a terrible state. And for some reason, they were playing Mozart in the cafe, which what kind of cafe plays Mozart? I don't know where he, where he lives. But anyway, they were playing something by Mozart and he said he could feel it healing him and putting everything in perspective. It's a very, very moving passage of the book, actually. Mm. Beautiful, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we know music, you know, music does that. It, it, it's, it's, you know, particularly, as we said, abstract music. Then there was music that does, does not have words attached to it. Um, seems to be a very direct channel into our emotional makeup and i don't know if you've read the work of oliver Sacks, but um I, I believe this is his last book was called music affiliate which oliver Sacks, who was a neurologist describes uh, you know various examples in which music both helped but, but also was one of the last faculties of sort of deteriorating brains to go and uh, for instance, he he he, he talked about a I can't remember his name, but he he was a quite an English quite a well-known English choir director who suffered a stroke, and as a result of this very bad stroke, he his his memory duration was was left to something like nine seconds, and you know the, I saw a picture of of this sort of journal like it. Uh, so, I can see, I can see freedom coming. I can, I can see I'm going to get better, but then, you know, and it was thrust out and nine, probably 10 seconds later, you'd write anything. I can see a light at the end of the timeline. It was very sad. About six months after, he, you know, after the, you know, he, he, he survived his terrible stroke, but um, some friends and colleagues of his went to visit him. And these were singers and they said, oh, we'll sing, we'll sing for him. Something that he knows. And so they, they started, you know, this small, I don't know, maybe it's, you know, 10 people from a choir. And he began to sing, and then he, he seemed to start conducting them. And as long as the music was going, he could do that. He knew some part of his brain went beyond the sort of nine second limit of his memory. In other words, the music, um, when you know it, it had the capacity somehow it was like the last thread in his brain that that was that was uh connected to memory in a, in a sense and it seems that music in 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 the brain connects you know both the older parts of the brain the newer parts of the brain the amygdala the prefrontal cortex all you know all these parts um are somehow participating in the activities in our you know our, our neuro neuronal circuits you might say um so there's something very profound about 
hearing and listening, and also if, if you're a player of, of playing music as well, um, that's, yeah, there seems to be, in other words, a profound biological something that's going on when we listen to and play music. Interesting. Yeah. Let me move on to another uh, question here. Um, you've already mentioned that uh, uh, classical music seems to be on the back burner, as you put it. Um, is it um, is it dead now? Do you think is it is that the end of the road uh, in the twenty first century? Is, is that something that we used to do, and we you know in the end we're not going to really do it anymore? Do you think? Well, I hope not. I don't think it will. I don't think it's like saying, okay, well, you know, not that many people go to the National Gallery or the Louvre or whatever to look at paintings, but I don't think the power that, you know, a Raphael or a work by Van Gogh or Monet is going to ever vanish. So even though, you know, Western classical music might so-called, you know, might be on the back burner in terms of, you know, the proportion of people, let's say, in London or New York or Boston listen to it. Uh, you know, my belief, which is quite strong, is that it has so much to offer the listener that, you know, it'll never die out. So our project, my project, is to try to introduce as many people as possible particularly younger people, say, well, actually, this, yeah, check out this, you know, even a, a Bartok string quartet, it's wild stuff, some of it. It's really exciting. Uh, I was in a quartet in Canada, and we did uh, quite a large number of school concerts, and, and one year we undertook the project of learning a piece called Black Angels by the American composer George Crumb. And it's a large piece, it's got 13 movements because it's also based around uh, certain numbers, particularly numbers 7 and 13. So it's 13, a 13 movement piece involving all sorts of, sort of altered techniques and this kind of thing and shouting and uh, chanting numbers in various languages. And we play, and we thought, uh, you know, and it's actually, you know, we were, you, the, the, the quartet is might and there is a gong and there's cymbals that you're sort of clattering on the strings. But it's a really strong piece and it, it invokes uh, music from the past like uh, Schubert and so forth. And we played it at various children's concerts. It was, it was a, an incredible hit. And, you know, so because it had something to say, you know, it, it, he wrote it in a way as a, as a statement lamenting the war in Vietnam in 1973. Uh, that's irrelevant to, you know, a seven-year-old living in Canada or a 10-year-old, right? But somehow the music, it was strong enough and well-structured enough. It's a very well-structured piece that it communicated some, of something important, something both delightful, scary, uh, inviting, challenging to these children, right? So I think the, 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 the project, as I said, is to invite people, well, check, okay, well, I know it's like, okay, you don't really have to get dressed up if you go to Symphony Hall, but you know, let's let's uh, let's see what this uh, you know Bruckner Symphony is all about, even though it's like seventy minutes long. And um, you know, I think like a lot of great art, to some degree, it 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 transcends culture. Um, it's helpful if you know a little bit about it, but you don't have to. But I think the point is, it's offering us something 
that's larger than ourselves. So I, I think um, the difficulty is to, you know, it's, 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 well, it's related to all sorts of things, but it's quite largely related to education and allowing people who don't know much or don't know anything even about, about this music to see, oh, this is this amazing, wow. Beethoven Symphony, it's incredible. You know, of course, one of the most famous melodies, possibly the most famous melody in existence is the, you know, the so-called joy theme from the Ninth Symphony. And, you know, I often, I mean, I've, I've conducted it twice. It's, 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 an, it's an incredible adventure to conduct that symphony, of course. Uh, but I, I, I ask, well, why, why is it such a good melody? Why is it so well known? You know, and it's partly because what just, you know, it's, it's that, that sort of self-fulfilling loop in a way that it's, it's well known because it's well known. But at the same time, there's something profoundly simple, profoundly moving, well-structured, memorable, that again in, in, invites us to ask, well, what is, what is that that's so attractive, that's so, uh, so uh, profound about this incredibly simple tune? And you know, Beethoven, it didn't come easily. He, he worked on this melody that was supposed to represent uh, a sort of invitation to universal brotherhood in a way. It took him about 15 years. You can see in his notebooks dating back that, you know, for Beethoven, it was not an easy task to find such a profoundly simple, yet beautiful tune. Um, so, yeah, the challenge is to just to sort of get, the, get the average person on the street. Well, no, 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 don't, don't go over there. Come into this hall and listen to, you know, this Mozart string quartet, whatever it might be. Um, and they'll say, wow, that's I had no idea, you know. Mm. So I, I think a lot, in large part... Um, there's the education. There's also the aspect that uh, you know, I read a very interesting essay. This is quite a while ago by Charles Rosen, who's an American musicologist, um, who proposed that until the advent of radio, most people played something. Even you know, most working class homes, both in Europe and in America, had a even if it was a battered upright piano of some sort, and they would gather around the piano play, sing, uh, and this was, you know, common entertainment. And you, know, you look at a lot of the composers, they, they would write, you know, Beethoven's placards, he'd write all sorts of like, arrangements of, you know, Scottish folk songs, for example, right, as a way to make money. But, you know, people would then sit around somewhere from Edinburgh, who knows where, around an old battered piano out of tune, but that's, that's what they would do for entertainment, because, of course, there's no television or radio in Beethoven's day. And because they, there was that sort of, Charles Rosen says, that physical connection, well, then when you went to hear a concert, um, it, it was in a way more accessible, more meaningful, because that's something you yourself participated in. I think, I think there's some truth in that. Uh, so in, in a way, then, from that, well, how can we get, again, more people playing uh, music rather than listening? I think that's quite important. In a way, that's why, you know, pop music, you've got so-called garage bands and so forth. Um, you know, in a way, those have, to some extent, taken over the function that the, the old battered piano took. Um, you know, music as something just to be listened to is, is quite a recent development. Uh, it's not something that was always happening mm -hmm. in, 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 in the, you know, you know even in uh, sort of, you know, not exactly working, but let's say peasant society, 
you know, they were, they were singing and dancing and playing and people participated. Um, so it's so the, the idea that particularly, you know, and this is something I resist as a conductor, uh, that everyone should be in a hall, well-dressed, very quiet, still. That's actually to me, not helpful to the listening process. You know, music, as we know, it's something embodied. We experience it in our bodies. So to not move in some way when we listen to, you know, uh, uh, doesn't matter if it's the right of spring or, a, you know, the, the moonlight sonata, which I know I advise you to love. Um, so not somehow move with it. it is, I think that's, that's a bit antithetical to the nature of music. So, so I sort of invite, uh, they don't do it, but I invite audiences, you know, if there's what, what get, get it, go into the aisles and start dancing, please, you know. Um, because that, that's what it's about, really. So, you know, I'm not one, I'm not a stickler for, oh, it has to be dead quiet. You know, of course, if a cell phone goes off, that's another matter. But um, so there is this, you know, this aspect that, mm. that, that this, this embodied nature of, of music uh, is very strong, of course, you know, connected with dance, connected, you know, probably from way back when with, with somehow with percussion and so forth. Um, yeah, so, but, but to go back to your question, I, I, uh, you know, we have to persuade at the local level the encouragement for as many children as possible to participate in the musical adventure. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I want to move on to the fact that you are a conductor and um, you're also a violinist and a very, very good violinist, I must say. Uh, two years ago, I heard you perform some solo violin pieces and one of them was the when I say solo I mean the violin was a solo but you had a piano backing I think it was accompaniment as far as I remember but you played the uh, the lark ascending and it was uh it was absolutely marvelous beautiful and I wonder what prompted you to move from being a violinist and violist perhaps as well to Conducting, why, why, why would you do that? Well, that's a good question. I mean, in, in a way, it just happened by chance. I was in a, in a professional string quartet in Canada, as I mentioned, and where I was living, there was a strong Suzuki program. To cut a long story short, they had some sort of internal struggles. They had a string orchestra. And anyway, as a result of the Eastern Tunnel, they invited me, I was not in that program, to as a sort of neutral person to take over their string orchestra. I said, well, that sounds like fun. You know? And it, because it was a very strong program, the orchestra, you know, it was about 17 or 18 kids, anywhere from about 11 to 17 years old, but able to play you know, Tchaikovsky serenade for strings. So in other words, a very good level group. And that was, you know, I, had, I didn't have the faintest idea about score study, how to conduct. So I just did my best. And then when I moved to this area, New England, um, another chance happenstance, um, a friend of a friend who was conductor herself had, she was leaving, she conducted a community orchestra and, and my friend said, oh, you know, you should just apply for this. So I, I sent in this uh, rusty VHS tape of myself conducting actually in a mall in Canada, this group of kids, and they invited me to the finals. And I, you know, I conducted her anyway. They, they, the next thing I knew, I was music director of, this, of a community orchestra. And, and that's sort of where it started. And then 
as a violinist, I was playing in what was, it's now, it doesn't exist anymore, but it's the, the New Hampshire Symphony, not the one I conducted, um, but the New Hampshire Symphony. Um, and the the conductor, well, the, the more recent conductor himself was a professor of conducting at the University of Michigan. And he, you know, inevitably we started talking about conducting and I asked him some questions having never had any training myself. I said, oh, yeah, I do, I, I do the summer camp. You should come. It's very intense, 18 days in, in the middle of nowhere in Maine. And initially there's a, a string quintet playing the string parts and a piano playing the wind and brass parts. And, uh, and then at the end of that, he just said, you know, he said quite sort of simply, well, you know, you're quite good. You should take this more seriously. And that's all he said. Cut a long story short. Next thing I was at the University of Michigan studying with him full time and getting a, a doctorate in, in, in orchestral conducting. And, and that was great because, you know, I really, I realized that, <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the time I've been sort of winging it, trying to figure out in difficult, you know, like I remember conducting Sibelius Violin Concerto. And it's just something that's quite hard to conduct, you know, just to work out how you can communicate with the soloist and the orchestra. Um, and, you know, most of my solutions were quite good, but I, I think without the training, it was much more challenging than it might have had to be. Anyway, so... Um, and in a way, it was it was a fantastic experience to go back. So I was already in my forties to go back. You know, of course, my colleagues were all half the, half my age, which was in itself quite interesting. But just to go back and spend some years studying both the, you know the physical aspects of conducting, music history, musicology, it was really a wonderful experience. Just to sort of forget about my workaday life, go back to full time study of music it was an amazing. Experience. Anyway, so as a result, yeah, I, I, yeah. Much better conductor, much able to, much more able to, yeah, just communicate what needs to be communicated in a piece. Um, I remember I was driving somewhere, and 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 somebody sort of innocently asked me in the car. We were going, I think, where we were going anyway. What is it about conductor you like? And I, I said, I think that's a great question. I said, well, partly I enjoy it because it's an impossible task. Because a conductor needs to be quite adept at many things. And I, I enjoy that challenge. You know, you have to be, obviously, you have to know the music very well. You have to somehow be able to negotiate, you know, the, the, as we talked about earlier, the form, the structure of the piece, the harmonies. Uh, you have to know how can I communicate what seems to be my emotional response to this music, to this particular section, even to a particular chord. Um, you have to be able to. You have to be a good communicator with the orchestra. Um, you have to be a good communicator with the board of the orchestra. You have to be a good communicator with the audiences. You have to know about the style of music, about mm. the history, you know, the, the the biography in a way of the composer. Uh, this kind of thing. So, so it's, it's incredibly multifaceted, and I, and I really enjoy that. Um, dive, you know, and you have to be a good psychologist. You've got, let's say, you know. A player, particularly a wind player, let's say an oboist, who, who's who's a very good player, but they you know they got their own ego. So I, I have to know well, how can I you know I want it to sound a certain way, okay? Has to fit in, but they want to do their own thing. How can I communicate in a way that's not going to sort of bruise their own ideas, their own ego? Um, yeah. So and, and and I think I'll just, I'll just go from here to say you know um, I've long seen you know to. 
one of the reasons I enjoy working with orchestras is because I see the orchestra and orchestra as a metaphor, a living metaphor for, an, for you might call it the ideal community. So what do I mean by that? And, and it was related to the Buddhist concept of, of Sangha in, its, in a way in its ideal form. So an orchestra is a group of, let's say, you know, 50, 80 people if it's professional, because they're all extremely good players, they've been working for many years at their individual instrument. So they've all got their own ideas, they've all got their own egos. But what are they doing? They're playing, let's say, a Brahms symphony. They're, the players are putting their expertise as a community to the service of something that they know, in a way, is greater than themselves. So an ideal community is, is doing the same thing. Let, let's say in, in Buddhist terms, the project is awakening, right? In an ideal sangha, we're all trying to help each other with that same project. Yeah, we all have our own ideas. We might have ideas about how to meditate, how to study, how to communicate and so forth. Nevertheless, we're trying to do these things in a way that's at the service of the greater project, which is awakening in Buddhist terms. And it's, it's really it's the same in an orchestra. And furthermore, you're trying to communicate the ideals of that project to a wider audience. So for me, it's, it's, it's really a beautiful mm. undertaking to work with, with that, uh, in, in a way, that ideal. Um, and the conductor, I feel, and this is one of the great gifts I teach, you know, he said, you get on the podium, you empty yourself out of ego, you become a vessel, a container, for everything else that is transpiring, the music itself, the other players, the listeners, and so forth. And I think he's totally right. Um, the conductor's job is simply to shepherd these various facets of what a symphony is on all its levels into something that's, that's uh, comprehensible and meaningful. My goodness. I remember being at a concert it wasn't a classical concert actually i can't remember what it was at the lowry in uh, salford and uh at the end it was a really good performance whatever it was and the whole um afterwards the whole theater just erupted and it was proper applause you know you can tell the difference between a polite, polite applause and real appreciative applause everyone was really appreciative it was a play or a musical, that's right, because the whole cast came on and they were delighted. They were beaming away because we were happy and they were happy and we were happy that they were happy and vice versa. And there was this sense of ideal community. It felt like I was suddenly in a pure land, to use a Buddhist term. And right. I felt so moved, more moved by the applause than by the 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 play or whatever it was that had just happened before. It was a marvellous experience. It's, it's very palpable, isn't it? When, when you know something's happened in, in a performance, when any artistic medium in a way, that somehow raised up the level of consciousness in a way of the entire audience. And it is, as you said, it's, you know when it's happened. Mm. Um, and I remember the same thing. I, 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 I participated, this is as a violinist, in a, in a performance of, it's a gigantic piece, an incredibly beautiful piece by Olivier Messiaen called The Quartet for the End of Time. And you know, in a way it's profoundly, 
He's evoking really profound, you might say, spiritual emotions. And it ends very slow. We just, you know, so it's for, for violin, cello, clarinet, and piano. And the last, the eighth movement, um, which is something like Pray to the Eternity of Jesus. I can't remember the exact title, but um, and it's very, very slow with these beautiful ethereal chords that Messiaen is justly famous for. And then it just, it sort of tails off as it were into eternity. And this, in particular one time I played it up in Canada. Yeah, it just, we, just, we just were still. And the audience, they didn't move about a minute. It was fantastic. And you just felt, well, something happened here. I don't know what exactly, but it was really beautiful. Uh, yeah, so we, we know when something has moved the listener. Uh, and that that's just it's lovely it makes it all worthwhile as as a yes. certainly as a, as a as a performer you know yeah yeah it must do it must be a marvelous experience uh we should probably come to a close soon and in a way it would be good to close with that but there's just something i want to read to you for something that you've written actually okay this comes from uh, a piece you wrote called the testimony to kamak do you know uh, well, I have a vague recollection of it, but okay, go on. So CAMAC is C-A-M-M-A-C, uh, and it doesn't tell you what that stands for. What, well, it, stands what for that stand uh, for? it stands for Canadian Amateur Musicians, Musicians Amateurs du Canada. So it's an acronym. Ah, okay. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, okay. it's a sort of chant so, in the summer, yeah. Yeah. So... You're you're writing this short piece about your experience of going there for 25 years and working with young musicians. And here's what you say here. So there is an ethos which defines what Kamak is. That through music, it really is possible to create a more ideal society in which generosity, love, open-heartedness, positive communication, patience, energy, and even wisdom are all in the foreground. Yeah. So, so Kamak actually is mostly adult amateur musicians. Uh-huh. There are a few kids, but it's mostly amateurs. You know, they, they, and some are extremely good. Some are quite elementary in terms of how they play. Uh, they're divided usually into groups of you know, similar levels, and we coach chain music. And then if they're so inclined, they can uh, play in the orchestra, which means that in the evenings. And Spire Lake in Quebec is very lovely. But yes, the ethos, you know, because they all, you know, they're, you know, they're judges, school teachers, doctors, policemen, it doesn't matter. You know, they're all professions, but they they all love music. They come for a week to play music all day long. They're in seventh heaven, as they say, because they're doing what they love and doing all day long. So that's, of course, helpful. But somehow the making of music together, and, it, and what's lovely, it, it doesn't matter that there are... A, kind of wrong notes let's say we do you know the first movement of a you know a schubert symphony attitude notes people coming in the wrong doesn't matter at all because people are offering what they can as we said earlier as i said earlier, to this bigger project in a way and it's out of it's out of a desire for beauty it's out of a desire for love um and I think when we have those elements alive, yeah, wisdom somehow emerges out of that, can emerge. A higher level of communication, of more generous communication, more, more loving communication. Uh, so I'm, I'm really fortunate. I spend you know, a lot of time with musicians. And, and 
it's just, I, I'm a little bit, I, I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm a little bit removed from the sort of uh, difficulties of, of, you know, sort of quote unquote pedestrian life. You know, so I, I live, I do, I, I, I realize I live in a bit of a rarefied world, actually. You're almost um, like a monk. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm living in the city. And in a way, um, you know, I've got my, my Aura Locust drink quartet and we, we go and we have a chat and with how you doing. And, and, but then, you know, we play, you know, we're giving concerts actually on Sunday and we're doing a Haydn quartet and a movement of Beethoven and a movement of Shostakovich. And just to spend, you know, two hours playing this music, investigating it, trying to make it better and so forth. It's not always, it's not always rosy because, you know, like, oh, well, that, you know, that was out of tune. Okay, right. Um <laughs> But nevertheless, you're, you're, again, engaged with something that's really uplifting. Um, and so I think, you know, that the call is for a person, for all of us, how can I, you know, it doesn't have to be music, it can be anything, but how can I elicit from the depths a response to life that is uh, or embracing, that's finding a way to make it somehow more, beautiful i think that's it just the you know the 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 attempt to make our mundane life more than that uh somehow more structured more even keeled more giving more wise you know i think and, and that's you know and, and it doesn't the arena in a way doesn't matter but if if we if we undertake that pressure i think we all know particularly as buddhists that oh, it's a worth it's a worthwhile adventure you know, we may not, we may, it doesn't seem that we succeed. Like, you know, like I tell my, you know, my meditation class, my, uh, my local sign, I'm, I'm constantly failing that. Um, you know, I, I did a course with, uh, with uh, Analia, who's a, who's a, he's a German monk, he lives in Massachusetts, a very wonderful uh, teacher whose particular expert, expertise is the Satipatthana Sutta. But, you know, I did a course and, and then I, I'm determined to, to just, bring more a more consistent awareness to my my daily life and i, I just couldn't do it i i would stuff tennis balls in my pockets just so they'd be annoying enough to re- oh I, i'm trying to be mindful but and even then you get used to the discomfort of tennis balls stuffed in your pocket but nevertheless you know we have to be forgiving okay well but it's a project as i said that that's really uh what well, makes life um a beautiful aid a beautiful uh participant in that greater project that's that's our human life um so i'm I'm very i'm very blessed i'm very fortunate uh that yeah somehow or other i i found myself on this sort of stream or river that's that's a sort of a musical life and combined combined with the with the buddhist life as well so i mean I, i couldn't be more grateful that somehow that emerged this sort of these two, these two uh, rivers converging um, into, yeah, into, you know, it's a very fortunate life, actually. Yes. Uh, I must say it's hard not to envy you, your life. It sounds really wonderful. Um, but I think we'll draw to an end there because I think that's a great way to end. But before we do so, I just want to let listeners know that a little while ago, I don't know how it happened, but I got uh, an email inviting me to uh, a virtual concert uh, of the New Hampshire Philharmonic that you were conducting. And uh, I went on to it and I, I clicked on and 
now they let me know whenever you're going to do a virtual concert. And so I, I can always listen to And if I don't listen to it at the time, I can always listen to it later. So um, I think after this, I'll ask uh, one of our technicians, Diavadra, I think be the person, to uh, put up a link to that. And people can uh, ask, request to be, to be put on the mailing list so they too can uh, listen to you conducting the New York, the New Hampshire Philharmonic. That would be really good, wouldn't it? Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was just marvellous. Uh, wonderful. I just so enjoyed it. I don't know how long we've been going on for. A while, but... An hour? Thank you, to, thank you Ratnagun. It's been a, a, a true pleasure to, to just to hang out with you, actually. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>